Good morning, friends. My name is Patrick Schlabs, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in downtown Charleston, and I am so happy to be with you this morning preaching God's Word. Before we jump in, I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning that all throughout this city, all throughout this region, that we, by this gift of technology, are able to uh, still gather, still be your people. Though separate, we are one in Christ, sitting now under the teaching of your word. And we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that your word would uh, go forth, that it would uh, quicken our hearts, uh, that we would ultimately see a glimpse of Jesus, crucified, risen, and soon to come again. And in seeing Jesus, may we be transformed to become like him. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm not sure there is anyone in the scriptural story that goes from uh, first to worst or champ to chump as quickly as St. Peter. Um, As I was reflecting on our gospel text this week, I had a couple of kind of sports images in mind. So if you'll uh, forgive me, I'm going to kind of uh, let you imagine those. When I think about this moment uh, with Peter, I think about... uh, the, the scene that you have occasionally happen in the NBA where someone makes a steal and they take the basketball all the way across the court and they go up for the open dunk and completely miss it. Bounces off, you know, goes to half court. Another image that I had in mind actually comes from my childhood. Uh, one of the Super Bowls in which the Cowboys played, I can't remember which one, but there was a big defensive lineman named Leon Lett who um, towards the end of the game uh, tackled the quarterback, the ball came loose, and he ran it all the way back uh, to the other side. And as he's at the one-yard line, he's got his hand out, extended and some small wide receiver had chased him down and slapped the ball out of his hand right before this moment of glory. In the South, we'd say, bless their heart, right? Pete, last week, unpacked this climactic moment of uh, messianic identity when Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they discuss um, Elijah, the return of Elijah. And then Jesus pointedly asks them, who do you say that I am? By which Peter affirms and says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is an epic moment. And Jesus' response to Peter is that he will build his church upon this rock, upon this truth of messianic identity. One can only imagine in this moment that Peter is just glowing, just so uh, happy to have been designated as this rock of the church. And so as we jump in and we look at this transition, as I said, from first to worst, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 16, and we'll see this transition for Peter. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, we've seen that Matthew chooses to tell the story of Jesus um, in these kind of uh, uh, coordinate, coordinating movements from displaying God's work as the Messiah to then declaring it. So he does these miracles, and then he has moments of teaching and talking about it and unpacking the nature of the kingdom of God. He teaches, and then he acts. And of course, this culminates, most scholars agree that this culminates in our last passage, whenever Peter declares that you are the Christ. The disciples have seen his, his works, they've seen and heard his teaching, and now they declare that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what our passage this morning reveals is that for Jesus, his identity, this recognition of his identity as the Christ is inseparable to his mission as the Christ. And so our passage begins in verse 21, when it says, From that time on, Jesus began to tell them, 
about his trajectory. Begin to tell them he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We have a sense that this is a definitive shift because the implication is that from that time on, and in fact we see it four times throughout the rest of the gospel, that Jesus points them to this moment of suffering. He points his face toward Jerusalem where he will suffer at the hands of all the religious leaders of Israel who will be killed and then ultimately will be raised again. I want to bring your attention to one word when it says that uh, he must. That word packs a punch. That the, the sense there is that it is de- divine necessity. When he says it is necessary, this is according to the will and plan of God that I would go to Jerusalem and experience all of these things. This is what I came to do. This is my mission. My identity is as the Christ, but my mission is toward the cross. And so the next verse, we see this exchange where Peter is surprised and offended at this promise of Jesus, at this declaration of his mission. Peter grabs him by the shoulders and kind of takes him aside off to himself. And, and one might even envision pastorally, right? He's now, um, you know, the head of the church. He is the rock. And so in, it may have been his responsibility to correct Jesus and to rebuke him and to tell him, no, this will never happen to you. And the sense is there that he rebukes him and says, this will happen. No way. The sense that he says is something like mercy or gracious. Far be it from you that this would happen. Not never. There's no way your trajectory is one of death and suffering. Any Jewish reader of this text would have been surprised and shocked and offended that a student would be correcting the rabbi. What leads to this response? Well, I believe it is that Peter could not imagine the reality of a suffering Messiah. He was unfathomable to him. And of course, Peter was not alone in this. The expectations for a Messiah were high at this moment. But the common picture that was talked about in in this uh, time was one of a superhero. Somewhat of a, a Jewish Rambo, if you will, who would come in, topple Rome, and usher in a moment of Jewish rule. They were expecting Messiah, but they were expecting Messiah without a cross. A Christ without a cross. And I wonder if we don't face somewhat of the same temptation today. Of course, we Christians, or really just any American, knows the Jesus story, right? We know that he was crucified and that he died. It's very common to us. And the cross, in fact, is a common symbol. I'm surrounded by them here in the cathedral, right behind me, a picture of a cross. We see them everywhere, though. They, they transcend uh, Christian tradition and practice. They're everywhere. Some of you may wear them on a chain on your neck. Some of you or your Mothers may have a wall in their house, like mine does, with crosses on them. And yet I wonder if the cross has become so familiar to us as to lose its offense, as to lose its shock and its horror. We know, of course, that the cross was the ancient world's most public, humiliating act of torture and death. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann summarizes this early sense of the cross by saying that to the humanism of antiquity, the crucified Christ was an embarrassment. Crucifixion was regarded as the most degrading kind of punishment. 
Thus, Roman humanism always felt the religion of the cross to be unesthetic, unrespectable, and perverse. It was regarded as an offense against good manners to even speak of this hideous death for slaves in the presences of respectable people. The cross in the ancient world was deeply offensive, and it was unfathomable that an entire movement could arise based on the crucifixion of their God. 20th century theologian James Cone has compared the cross to lynching as the the most uh, appropriate image that we can see. It's a deeply public, public act that's meant to be a spectacle. To see someone hanging upon a cross is to expose them in all of their shame, in all of their grotesqueness. The cross is something that was intended to be public and humiliating and shameful and grotesque. This is why Peter takes Jesus aside and says, this will never be. This cannot be your trajectory as the Messiah. But of course, Jesus' response may be just as shocking when he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Peter, who a few verses before had been called the rock, now is, by implication, a stumbling stone for the mission of the Messiah. And Jesus reminds him that you are correcting me like this because you do not have on your mind the things of God, but rather you have the things of man. And from an earthly, human perspective, we continue to be shocked at the suffering of the Messiah. And yet, it is necessary. This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, Jesus' mission to redeem the world. And so we see that a Christ without a cross is not Christian. It is, in fact, satanic. It harkens back to Jesus' first temptation when he was offered all the kingdoms of this world if he would simply bow his knee to Satan. This image returns whenever Jesus is offered uh, some kind of uh, escape in the Garden of Gethsemane where he can turn away from his mission. This is the satanic offer. And this is why Peter, or this is why Jesus calls Peter Satan. And again, this notion of a suffering Savior, of a Christ absent of a cross, flies in the face of human nature, and more specifically, flies in the face of American culture. And I believe that is because Christ and his cross confronts our human nature towards conquest. Many of the terrible actions that have been committed by Christians in the church in history derive from this. Our constant temptation to want to overtake. Going back to the very beginning of our story, to Constantine, right? When he sees the vision of the cross in the sky and says, here's this voice that says, by this symbol, conquer. And that has been the temptation of the church throughout the ages. To use the cross as a symbol of conquering. Use the cross, as it were, as a sword. And this, of course, is to our shame. And this passage, Jesus confronts that directly and says that the way that we conquer, the way that he conquers, is not through conquering, but through suffering, through service, and ultimately through death. This is why as Christians, as believers, as followers of this crucified Messiah, we are at our best when we are in the position of the least. We are seeking to lay down our lives for the service of others. And yet, many of the great instances of Christian 
uh, uh, glory throughout the ages has been in this posture of service, following our crucified Messiah. The second thing that this uh, Christ plus his cross confronts in us is a very American pull toward comfort. When the early Christians would have read this text, they would have been encouraged. They would have been affirmed. They would have known that it was not them suffering alone, that this was not abnormal for them to go through suffering and oppression and martyrdom, but that it was the way of their Savior. It was the way of Jesus. They knew that he not only had gone before them, but he was with them and present with them in the midst of suffering. And I fear that many of us, myself included, read this today and we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not what we signed up for. This was not the version of Christianity that was sold to us. We signed up for the perks. We wanted to be present in community. We want to have uh, you know, some means of feeling better about ourselves or feel like we're doing something good and valuable in the world. We're receiving some level of social clout, even still today in a place like Charleston, by our participation in the church. We did not sign up for a cross. Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopal priest, uh, captures this well when she says that it is typical of American Christianity, as of American culture as a whole, to push the cross out to the margins because we prefer a much more upbeat and triumphalist form of proclamation and practice. We have a hard time envisioning the cross even to this day. And yet, of course, we know that just as there is no Christ without his cross, there is no Christian either. And so in verse 24, Jesus extends his mission, extends his trajectory, not just to his work, but to all those who would come after him. Verse 24, then Jesus told his followers that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the very nature of our faith, friends. Our faith is one of suffering and death. And this pushes back our expectations of comfort, our expectation of being, being insulated from all of the pain and all of the brokenness of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great theologian of the cross, captures this well in his famous phrase when he says, Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As a pastor, it is my job to walk with people, with some of you, through pain and suffering and difficulty. And often, the assumption that I encounter, both among people and among my own heart, is that suffering is somehow abnormal. There's this subtle American version of the prosperity gospel that we all buy into one way or the other, that if we do good things, ultimately we deserve good things. We deserve blessings. We deserve to have a good job and a good marriage and good health and good children, good retirement, good home, that nothing should ever impinge upon that. And in one regard, that is true. That expectation comes from a deeply right place. Because when we look at suffering, when we look at the brokenness of the world, when we look at uh, 
illnesses and sickness and death and pain and destruction. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Those are consequences of sin and the fall. And yet, in another regard, we should expect this. In fact, our entire witness of the words of Jesus in the Gospels and the epistles that follow it have an expectation of suffering. It is the norm for followers of the crucified Messiah. As we see in the early church who found great hope and conviction in this truth, and even as we see today with our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the sake of Christ, they find hope in this. Jesus is the one that suffers before them, but he also told us to expect that very same suffering for ourselves. Now, of course, I'm under no illusions that this is an easy word. This reminder, this story of Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come and usher in God's plan and God's rule for all of the cosmos, who suffered upon a cross, a Roman cross, this is hard. It's paradoxical. This life that we are called to of self-denial, of cross-bearing, of Jesus following, it is far from the easy way. It is not convenient. It is not our best life now. And yet when we look to Jesus, who set his face upon this journey toward Jerusalem, who followed through, who was mocked, who was shamed, who was beaten, who was crucified. The author of Hebrews reminds us that he did this all for the joy that was set before him. He faithfully executed his father's plan and brought about the redemption of the world. And he did it for you and he did it for me. This crucified Messiah says that it was all worth it. All the suffering, all the shame was worth it to bring about redemption for us. All of the temptation in the garden was worth it. His sinless life was worth it for the sake of redemption. Jesus shows us, friends, that there is no true kingdom without the cross. And because of this gospel, we see that this message, that this journey that we are called to of taking up our own crosses is worth it for us as well. Matthew continues in verse 5 and reminds us that we could gain the entire world and yet lose our souls. And what's that worth? The only way to gain our souls, to gain our lives, is by seeking to lose it for the sake of Jesus. And so we know that this way, this journey towards suffering and death, towards a life of suffering and death, is worth it now. Our chapter ends with an image of Jesus coming, he says, with his angels to usher in fully his kingdom, to repay each person according to their deeds. And so we see that, friends, it is worth it here in this life. But more than that, it is worth it in the life to come. It is worth it in context of eternity. And so my appeal to us, those invited to follow in the footsteps of our crucified Messiah, is to remember this story. Remember the offense. Remember the surprise. 
that redemption is brought about by suffering and death. And I would ask you that if you are one who has a temptation to, uh, to overtake, to rule, and to reign with force, remember the cross of Christ. And if you are one that's tempted, which I fear many of us are, to remain in comfort, to simply uh, pr- maintain status quo, ask yourself, how am I to deny myself and to take up my cross and to follow Jesus? The Peter we see in this story was certainly shocked by the reality of the suffering Savior. But eventually we know, and the tradition of the church tells us, that Peter would follow his Savior in that same path to crucifixion. Literally, he was crucified upside down. Peter knew that this crucified Christ is the only Savior that there is. And friends, may we know that same truth and follow that same Savior wherever he may lead.